Hello and welcome to the Governance Matters podcast from Governance Intelligence, formerly known as Corporate Secretary. In this show, we examine the work of governance professionals and the latest developments they face. I'm your host, Editor-at-Large, Ben Maiden. Later in the show, we hear from Ajita Abraham, former General Counsel for Financial Services at Capgemini, about some of the latest regulatory developments around artificial intelligence. She also shares advice for governance teams on helping their companies prepare for the privacy and confidentiality risks that AI presents. But first, I spoke recently with Alexandra Higgins, Managing Director at Okapi Partners, about companies' plans to transition or adapt in the face of growing physical threats from climate change. That is, everything from hurricanes to wildfires. Specifically, I asked her about how governance professionals can nudge their boards to take action if the company lacks a plan, and about some of the unintended negative social impacts a company can have as it adapts. Think insurance companies pulling out of states like Florida and California, just for one example. Well, hi, well, Alexandra, thank you uh, so much for joining us. So just to start off with one scenario you might find yourself in as a corporate secretary or other governance professional is being in a company that faces material and fairly immediate or short-term risks, physical risks from climate change, but the company doesn't have a transition or I think you prefer to call it an adaptation plan. If you find yourself in that situation, what can you do to sort of try and get the board to, to move along and... and uh, you know, get them to take take the issue seriously. Uh, it's a position that governments folks don't often find themselves in, but they perhaps will be at the moment. Yeah, definitely. And I think that climate risk is something that's going to touch most companies in every industry at some point in time. We're we're getting to that point where the physical risks are affecting assets um, and the bottom line for many companies, and not only just to do with flooding or increased intensity of hurricanes, but we're also looking at water shortage. And water is becoming increasingly important with technology, especially with data centers. And so as companies start to face these risks that are associated with climate change, I think it's really important that boards begin to understand where the risks lie. I think it's important for the corporate secretaries to do a deep dive into their assets, where they're located. Geography is going to play an important part of this, but also for the boards to be continually updated about this. One of the things that I've learned in working with with companies directly and boards uh, or corporate secretaries is that they're not always uh, fully informed of what's going on within the company in terms of risks. And so I think it's important for the corporate secretary to very much get involved in or in line with the enterprise risk management system uh, within the company, as well as getting familiar with the risks that are presented to investors in general. I think that there can be a disconnect between what are the risks associated with climate change that can be presented in the 10K, but at the same time, the board may not necessarily be fully aware of it because they're not reading every single section or every detail of everything. So when it comes to informing the board as a corporate secretary, get to know the ins and outs of the company itself in terms of risks, because it's not just about governance. It's not just about, you know, making sure that the board has the proper oversight of executive compensation or ENS metrics right? It's important that the board is informed of risks associated with climate change, and that can present any number of risks financially. Right. And, and 
once the, the board has, uh, in this sort of hypothetical, decided that, okay, we've been educated, we better get on with, you know, having the company develop this plan. What's the sort of key role then for the corporate secretaries? Is it just to continue to educate the board again, just to keep, uh, obviously, they may not necessarily be involved directly in designing the plan, but is it does it remain an educational function? No. I think that climate change risk uh, is going to present itself to almost every company in the future. So at a certain point, it's not just about education. It's about preparedness and it's about strategy. And we can see companies already changing their strategies in right. light of climate risk. So it's not mm. like a lot of companies are not already aware of this or are not changing their strategy, but it's important that boards be completely aligned with what they need to do in the future. When I think about what boards focus on, right, sometimes they're only focused on the financial part or the metrics part, right? They're focused on disclosing GHG emissions. They're focused on making sure that they're disclosing enough to be in line with MSCI or Sustainalytics, because those are things that portfolio managers use to screen companies in and out of their portfolios. Yes, that can get you additional access to capital being created by these ESG funds, but that is not the most important thing. You know, the most important thing is obviously the long-term sustainability of the company, especially in the eyes of, of the investors. So I think that, you know, the corporate secretary's function is going to go beyond just educating. It's going to be about continually informing the board and recommending to the board, you know, what other companies in their industry are doing uh, in terms of changes to strategy and even internally, you know, what what people are recommending. Mm-hmm. And as we've, we've discussed before, when a company starts going through its sustainable it's a transition or adaptation plan, its actions may have unintended sort of social knock-on effects and and you know, insurance companies reducing coverage or pulling out of certain areas or mining lithium for electric vehicles uh, might be examples of those. What are some other of those sort of negative impacts that can be associated with a transition plan? And, uh, you know, how much should uh, should that be taken into account in the assessment of, of the plan before it's, uh, it's put into effect? I mean, I think a lot of this fundamentally boils down to how you perceive value in the company, right? Do you perceive value as it pertains to shareholder privacy in the sense that, you know, the only thing that matters is returns to shareholders and whether it be short term or long term. I mean, in in my mind, that's a mistake because if you're only looking at short term profits for shareholders, you're neglecting an entire, you know, base of uh, stake are involved, right? It could be employees, it could be be your the communities that you operate in, it could be other countries, right? And so risks associated with any type of transition or adaptation plan, right? I think it, it must carry consideration of the social aspect. And not not just because right, if you pull out, if you're an insurance company and you're pulling out of Florida or Louisiana because the costs associated with the increased intensity of hurricanes is becoming too much for you to handle. I mean, I can understand financially in the short term why it makes sense to do that. But in the long term, right, you're dealing with potential reputational costs associated with leaving homeowners uninsured. And you're also dealing with potential reputational costs of people not trusting you, right, in the future. 
So I think that there are there are social aspects that could materialize financially that companies are not taking into consideration right now, but they should. Mm -hmm. And legal cost ultimately, uh, perhaps either from a regulatory or from a sort of class action. Absolutely, yeah. I think that all of those are those are important. I mean, not you know, I don't, I haven't seen any legal or regulatory challenges related to to climate change personally. So I don't know of any out there, but I can certainly see those coming up. I can certainly see people challenging companies that are making strategic decisions that are potentially going to cost the company in the future. Now, it's very hard to prove that the company's current strategy may harm shareholders in the future at some point. And I think that companies are extremely focused based on, you know, Delaware law, right? And shareholder primacy saying the most important thing is that you create returns for shareholders. Again, I, I'm, I challenge, personally challenge that. And I believe that companies should uh, take into consideration environmental and social factors that could affect the long-term value of their company, even though it's not presented right now, even though it may potentially not be profitable for their shareholders now. Uh, I do believe that in the future it will. Mm -hmm. And as you know, we've seen a lot more disclosure by companies around their transition plans and um, sort of pressure from investors in, in through shareholder proposals and, and voting to focus on releasing, you know, how you're going to transition or adapt. And um, I just wonder what you thought for where as we're talking about these potential negative social impacts that might come from that plan. Is that is it possible to report on those? Should that should that feature alongside your your disclosure of the plan to say, well, it may have these potential impacts, or does that just leave you open to potential litigation or you increase your chances of reputational risk? You know, that's an interesting question, and I I haven't actually thought about the the short term impact of disclosing your long term plan. But it's not like companies haven't done it in other situations, right? Companies will spin off a huge branch of their company and inform shareholders that in the short run, this is going to decrease our value and we're going to be an entirely different company, right? To me, I don't see how exposing yourself in, in a different strategy would be any different, right? If you're spinning something off, because it's financially no longer profitable for you or that it's causing you too much expenses. To me, why not say the same thing about something that could potentially be environmentally or socially costly for you? So I believe that companies should, if they're going to seriously change their strategy in light of the risks of climate change um, or other social and environmental risk factors, then they should change their strategy and should disclose that to shareholders and let them know that it will impact them in the short, in the short term. But in the long term, this is for the long term viability of the company. Transparency is always very welcome, as you know. Yeah. Um, just one last thing, and I know it's um, only really sort of coming to focus today that we're recording this, but um, uh, the COP28 agreement, do you have any thoughts on whether that's uh, the kind of thing that can help encourage companies to adopt a, a transition or adaptation plan? Is that like, do you think that's likely to have much impact or is it too soon to, to tell? Certainly something that a corporate secretary could rem, remind them, remind the board of, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, I believe it's something that the, they can remind the board of. I don't know necessarily what the impact will be 
on corporations, but I do believe any type of global representation within this specific topic is going to garner attention. Now, whether that's negative attention or positive attention, I don't know, but I think attention to the situation in a way that says, look, global leaders around the world are taking this seriously. We should be taking this seriously too, regardless of the short-term financial strains that it may cause us, because this is what we're hearing from other countries who may be experiencing it differently than us. Right. Well, there's certainly a lot of work to do. Alex, thanks so much for joining us, as always. And, uh, you know, have a great 2024. Hope to speak to you soon. You too. Thank you. Governance Intelligence Next Webinar is just around the corner. Taking place on the 11th of January 2024, this webinar looks at how internal collaboration drives digital engagement. Corporate legal professionals will share their experience on working together on digital engagements to meet the needs of investors and other stakeholders. You will learn how legal teams are collaborating on digital stakeholder engagement, tips for gold standard virtual and hybrid investor days, how technology can drive engagement around the AGM, effective ways to manage online Q&As and voting processes. Sign up for Governance Intelligence next webinar. More information about the event is available at governance-intelligence.com forward slash events. Welcome back. We now turn to my conversation with Ajita Abraham, former General Counsel for Financial Services with Capgemini. I started by asking her about the EU's new artificial intelligence law and how it would likely impact many US companies. Hi Ajita, thanks for being here. Now, confidentiality and privacy are at the centre of concerns about the use of data by AI. And we've just in the last few weeks had a new EU law on this. Can you tell us a little bit about who it applies to? What are some of the key takeaways that... Uh, our, re- our audience, I should say, not readers, should be uh, paying attention to. Yes, Ben. At first, I wanted to thank you for having me on this podcast. I'm really excited to talk about some of the new developments um, with respect to AI uh, and legal issues. So just to touch on the European Union AI Act, it's important to note that there was an agreement that was just recently reached on December 8th. And some of the key takeaways are that it will take effect around 2025. And it has a very broad reach. It applies to any company who sells, imports, distributes, and deploys an AI system in the EU. And if the output is intended to be used in the EU, even if those companies are based outside the EU. So that will have implications for U.S. companies as well. Okay. And what are the sort of things that uh, will it require them to do or or, or safeguards, I suppose, that they might need to put in place? Yeah. So it's interesting. There's actually four tiers of risk that have been outlined. And those four tiers are unacceptable, high, essentially generative AI and uh, limited or low risk. So, you know, just to give an example with respect to unacceptable or prohibited types of AI systems, those are considered Um, systems that have a clear threat to the safety, livelihood, and rights of all people. Examples being biometric identification systems in publicly accessible spaces, except if used by law enforcement. Also, uh, any predictive policing systems, 
emotion recognition systems, even in law, force, law enforcement and border management, and untargeted scraping of facial images from the internet or CCTV footage uh, to create re facial recognition databases. So that's considered a violation of human rights and the right to privacy. So those are all prohibited systems. Right. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> yeah. Um, then with respect to high risk, um, it's any AI system that poses a significant harm to people's health, safety, and the fundamental rights of the environment. So this includes, you know, certain types of products that uh, would use AI, and that uh, includes radio equipment, medical devices, and in vitro diagnostic medical devices, um, as well as AI used in civil aviation products and automo automotive industries. Uh, again, pretty broad. And I thought what was interesting is high risk is also considered AI systems used to influence voters and the outcome of elections. So something oh. to think. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, one would hope that would be prohibitive, but um, I guess I guess just serious. Right. Right. So what needs to be so in those high risk AI systems, there needs to be an assessment before they're put out on the market, and there's a continued uh, requirement to have this type of assessment throughout their life cycle. And so what are some of the, what would be classified as sort of safe or, or low risk? Yeah, and before we even get to the low risk, there's also foundation AI models, which include generative AI. And, you know, I think we're all familiar now with what generative AI is, but uh, in order to use those types of systems, um, there is a need to assess and mitigate any possible risk to health or safety, uh, fundamental rights, the environment, democracy, and the rule of law. And also those types of models need to be registered in the EU database, and there needs to be disclosure that the content was AI generated. So there are quite a lot of re requirements for generative AI models. And then lastly, to go uh, to touch on the limited risk or low risk type of systems, these are AI systems that generate or manipulate image, audio, or video content. And, um, you know, the basic requirement is that user, users should be made aware when they are interacting with AI. Okay. So it sounds like if you're at a, a U.S. company, um, part of your required reading for January might be uh, checking up on the details of this and whether it applies to you and, and, and so forth. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think what's, what will be very interesting is to understand, you know, uh, when the act is applicable, um, it seems to have a very broad reach. So U.S. companies should be alert uh, and ensure they understand uh, what this act entails. Okay. Well, the, the Europeans have stolen the march on the U.S. Um, in terms of legislation around AI. But uh, here we've had, um, you know, uh, White House executive orders um, and there's one in uh, from October. Again, could you sort of maybe give us an outline of what that means for companies um, and how does it really compare with it, the approach that the EU has taken? Sure. So the White House executive order on AI was issued on October 30th of this year, and it will come into effect in 90 days. So that's January 28th, 2024. So coming up very soon. And there's really eight main points. Uh, the first point is uh, ensuring a safe and effective systems and ensuring that there's robust uh, evaluations of AI systems, um, as well as policies and mechanisms to mitigate risks before the systems are put to use. Um, another point is uh, the focus on leadership by the U.S. Uh, so the U.S. is now going to invest more in education, uh, training, research, and uh, the ability to attract the best AI talent and promote innovation, competition, and collaboration. So I thought that was a really interesting um, focus of the Biden administration on uh, AI. 
Um, and then there's, a, you know, some other, of course, more uh, protective measures being put in place. One is a, a support of American workers to make sure that AI is not uh, undermining their rights and um, worsening their job quality and uh, market competition. Another is equity and civil rights. Um, this is really focused on algorithmic discrimination, so making sure that uh, there's still protection of uh, civil rights. Uh, consumer protection, um, and here the focus is, you know, ensuring companies are not excused from their, their consumer protection obligations, um, especially with respect to minors who are increasingly using and interacting uh, with AI-enabled products. Um, another tenet is uh, privacy and civil liberties. Uh, so, you know, like the EU, focused on the retention of uh, data being lawful secu and secure and ensuring that there's privacy with respect to the data that's being collected. Um, responsible use by the federal government uh, is another focus. And this recognizes that the federal government um, should manage uh, the risks from their own use of AI um, and uh, make sure that it's responsibly used. And lastly is international coordination. So this order uh, focuses on the federal government leading the way um, to engaging with international partners to develop a framework to manage AI risks and uh, essentially unlock the potential for good and promote a common approach um, to some of these challenges uh, raised by AI. Mm -hmm. Fingers crossed. Yes. Um, so, so turning from the sort of the government level to um, to companies and their governance teams, um, in terms of previous, the privacy and confidentiality risks of uh, AI, um, what are some of the sort of best practices for internal policies on using AI that, that companies uh, should be thinking about implementing? Right. So I think the first uh, point is to make sure employees uh, really understand that uh, once information is input into an AI tool, it's no longer confidential, right? So, you know, especially this is especially applicable with generative AI tools, um, and, and that's important. So, you know, one cannot put in board meeting notes and expect those notes to stay confidential. That will, could all be used uh, as part of that tool's training data. Uh, the second point is really to uh, understand that personal data is a very broad term, and it includes any information uh, that allows a direct or indirect identification of an individual. So that could include publicly available information that's part of a public social media profile. So companies uh, must understand that you know that type of personal data must, or any personal data, must be processed uh, still in compliance with any applicable data protection laws, um, and they must understand you know what their obligations are both from a regulatory perspective and a contractual perspective. Um, so my advice always is don't put, input any personal data into AI tools if possible, um, even if that information is publicly available, pseudonymized or aggregated. Um, if that's not possible, then like I said, business needs to be aware of uh, any applicable data protection laws. Um, they must uh, ensure that they comply you know, with any laws with respect to algorithmic bias. And of course, my advice would be to contact uh, your DPO and uh, legal team and a cybersecurity officer to make sure any such use is reviewed and approved. Okay. And just lastly, and I mean, how can 
uh, governance teams will try and address those privacy confidentiality risks in terms of contractual language with third parties. So just looking outside of the company a little bit. Um, how does how does that line up? Right. So two points. One is you know contractual liability with respect to the AI tool providers, um, and the second is contractual liability um, if one if your company is a service provider with the clients or with uh, your customer base. So with respect to the AI tool providers, it's, it's important to understand that you may not have much protection with respect to privacy and confidentiality, and there's probably not much uh, protection with respect to warranties and indemnities. So you would want to understand, you know, what type of license you have, you know, how that information is being protected if uh, your company information is segregated or if it's, you know, uh, it's part of training tools. And you may want to think about um, getting an enterprise-wide license versus, you know, a free license that can be downloaded. So I think it's important that companies have a policy in place um, that ensures that employees, you know, before they're downloading any tools, any AI tools, um, they uh, contact the appropriate um, representative to make sure that uh, they have these types of mitigating factors assessed. Then with respect to clients, you know, many of the agreements between, let's say, service providers and clients, um, if, if your company is a service provider, you may be providing reps and warranties with respect to intellectual property and with respect to the output of uh, any deliverables you provide. And then with generative AI outputs, you have to be very careful uh, because, again, you may not own that IP, so therefore you won't be able to provide the same types of reps and warranties. So it's very important to incorporate additional disclaimers um, in those cases. So I think, you know, really in a, in a nutshell is understand the use case of, of how you're using these AI tools, um, both the input, uh, the type of information that's being input, as well as the output to assess the risk. Thank you very much for that very helpful update. You said there's, there's so much going on and it's very uh, helpful to have this uh, very useful snapshot this time of year. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate it. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Governance Matters podcast with me, Ben Maiden. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to like, subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening.